Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. So we are looking at the story of Samson, the story of Samson, a little bit of a background. Samson was probably, as a child, Samson was my favorite Bible character um, because, well, as a boy growing up, I quite liked the whole kind of superhero vibe, and, and Samson was strong and, and did mighty things, so I quite liked Samson. And then um, as I got older and read into Samson's life, um, you know, maybe maybe my admiration for him dimmed a little, somewhat. But as a kid, I really enjoyed the story of Samson. And uh, before we even get anywhere with Samson this evening, I want to give you a warning that there will be much violence. As we go through this study, there is much violence in the story of Samson. So if you're squeamish, then, you know, bring some earmuffs or something when we get to those bits. <coughs> Um, I'm going to read through the way we're going to do it over the next four weeks. It, my plan is that we look at a chapter at a time. There, there are four chapters that cover the, the narrative of Samson, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. So my plan is to do one chapter a week. I think we'll have to squeeze some extra bits in because chapter 16 is where all the stuff goes down. And I think we may end up wanting to spend a little bit more time there than anywhere else. So we'll see where we go. That's the plan. So the plan is that today we will start in Judges 13. So I'm assuming you have your Bibles with you. I'm going to read through it and then uh, we'll get stuck in. Samson, Samson, Judges chapter 13, the birth of Samson, says this again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? <clears throat> the angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not yet realize it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the green offering, sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. 
But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manahedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Great start. <coughs> Great start to an incredible story. Just want to touch on two things before we get stuck into Scripture. I want to maybe address two things that we think about Samson generally that I think aren't true. Okay, these are my thoughts. I think these aren't true. Um, if you've ever seen any movie that they've done on the life of Samson, there are a few out there. I did a quick Google before I came out. There are a few. Um, or if you've ever seen a children's illustrated Bible, all the pictures of Samson have Samson as a huge, ripped, muscly guy. I don't think he was. I don't think he was. <coughs> the reason I don't think he was is because Sometimes in the Bible, if someone's physical characteristics are important for us to know, it will be said. So, for example, Saul was described as a head taller than everyone else because that was important for us to know. Zacchaeus was small in stature. So the Bible doesn't shy away from describing people, but the Bible doesn't say that Samson was huge and stepped out of a gym every day doesn't say that at all. <coughs> the gift that he had was supernatural strength. It had nothing to do with his physical characteristics. I understand if you're doing a movie, it probably looks better having some huge guy throwing people around than, than someone who maybe isn't as muscly. But I don't think Samson was particularly outstanding in terms of physicality. It's just my thoughts mainly because his gift was a gift from God. It was supernatural. It wasn't anything to do with his physicality. The second thing that I think we, we kind of uh, label Samson with is failure. Samson was a failure. And I probably have said this in my life sometimes when I've talked about Samson, that Samson was a failure. Now, we'll look at two reasons as to why I don't think he was a failure. I think he totally messed up in a lot of areas a lot of times. But was he a failure? How do we define failure? I mean, Samson is, is mentioned in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Fame, where, you know, heroes of the faith are mentioned. His name is in there. There's a lot of people whose names aren't in there, but Samson's name is in there. So he gets to be in the Hall of Fame. And there's another reason that we'll look at later why I don't think Samson can be defined overall as a failure, which is an interesting thought. How do we look at ourselves? How do we, how do we consider ourselves? How do we measure ourselves? What, at what point do we say, I'm doing okay, or I am a failure? Because at that point, we need to think, what are the standards that I have set? And are those standards I have set something that God has set over my life, or something that someone else has set over my life? Am I trying to measure up to someone else's standards? So when we say Samson was a failure, it could be because we are measuring him by something that we shouldn't be. So we get to the narrative. It says that Israel had sinned, had forsaken God. It says at the beginning, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they had fallen into this cycle. They had a terrible cycle. The cycle was this. They would love God. They would get bored, but probably not bored. They would forget about God. They'd forsake God. They'd do their own thing. Then bad things would happen to them. They would be punished, or they would, they would suffer in some way. They would cry out to God, God save us. God would send them a deliverer. They'd be grateful. There would be peace. And then the whole thing started again. Let's look at some examples. So don't need to take my word for it. Judges chapter 3. Verse 7, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burnt against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim. Why did they choose this passage? He's got loads of fancy names in. To whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, a deliverer Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Glorious. 
verse 12. That is verse, that's verse 9, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamites. If you've never read the, the narrative of Ehud, it is one of my favorites. It's great. <coughs> Verse Chapter 4, verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold him into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, because he had 900 iron chariots and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She then embarks on this incredible journey with a, with a guy who falls apart. We did a study on Deborah a while ago, and it was amazing. And then we get to uh, chapter 6. Again, surprise. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. They cried out to him, God raises up Gideon. Chapter 10. This will be the last one. Chapter 10. Verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them and sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, etc., <coughs> etc., so there is this cycle that they get into where when things are good, things are good. When things are good, they forget God. And then they get into a situation where things are bad. And it would seem that things are bad for a long time, like 18 years, 20 years. Things are bad for a long time before they get to the point where they cry out for a deliverer. And then God gives them a deliverer, a judge, someone who does something incredible to set them free from their oppression. They're grateful. They rejoice. They serve God. And then they fall into the pattern again. And how easy it is for us to also fall into similar patterns in our lives where we are desperate for God when things are difficult. And when things are good... We forget who he is. We mustn't be those people. In good times and in bad times, we must remember who God is. So Judges chapter 13, we get to this narrative of Samson. Samson was an act of grace. The reason I say Samson was an act of grace is because in all of those narratives that I read, the Israelites did evil, they were punished, they were oppressed in some way. They cried out to God, God sends them a deliverer. In Judges chapter 13, it is not recorded at all that they cried out to God for a deliverer. It's not recorded anywhere. What it says is Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so... The Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Then a certain man of Zorah, named Manoah from the clan of Danites, had a wife who was sterile. The angel appeared to her and said, you're going to give birth to a boy. So they hadn't cried out, but God had stepped in and done something without the people requesting it. Samson was an act of grace. So much of what we get and what we don't get is an act of God's grace to us. Someone said, when a person works an eight-hour day, receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway... That is a good picture of God's unmerited favor. And that's what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. Again, they had turned against God. Again, they had fallen into this pattern of evil behavior. But God steps in with this incredible gift 
of a child <coughs> and says in verse 5, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so this is God's incredible gift of grace to the children of Israel. And not just, I don't just think Samson was an act of grace to Israel. I think throughout Samson's life, God shows grace to Samson by continuing to use him. We'll see that as over the next four weeks. By continuing to use him, even when he messed up, even when he turned his back on God, even when he decided to do things his own way. God had a way of using Samson still, which gives us hope. It gives me hope. And it is interesting that of all the judges, Samson is the one who takes up more real estate in the book of Judges than any of the other, ju other judges. He's the 12th judge, and he has four chapters dedicated to him. And you would think four chapters dedicated to someone must have had an incredible life. But you will see as we go through the next four weeks that his life was sometimes not good. So Samson was an act of grace. The second thing I want to point out is that he was set apart. He was set apart. The angel said to his mom, you're going to conceive and have a son. See to it that you drink no wine or the fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. Now, the whole Nazarite thing was a vow that you would take. It was unusual for someone to be a Nazarite from birth. In fact, there were only three people in all of Scripture who were Nazarites from birth for their whole lives. Um, and uh, if you want to read more about the, the Nazarite vow, that is num you can find that in Numbers chapter 16. It goes through what you would do. But basically, it means this. You would do three things. You would not have wine or strong drink. You would not cut your hair off during the whole period of your vow, and you would not have any contact with the dead. So if you decided, I'm going to make a vow to God for a particular period of time, three months, six months, two years, it's going to be a Nazarite vow, then for those years, you would not do any of those things. And then at the end of, the end of that time, you would come back to the priest, the priest would cut your hair. <coughs> it's usually a man who made the vow. The priest would cut your hair, and the hair would be thrown into the offering fire under the, the peace offering, and your vow would be complete. Yep. So whatever it was that you, you set yourself apart to focus on God in a particular way for a particular time. And this was going to be something that marked Samson's life, that he was set apart from everyone else, that he was going to be a Nazarite for his whole life, not just for a period of time. So there are two other people in the Bible who are Nazarites for life. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. That is Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And then in Luke 1, 15, for he will be great and distinguished in the sight of the Lord, and he must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit, even in and from his mother's womb, John the Baptist. So Samuel, John the Baptist, and Samson are the only three people who were Nazarites from birth and for their whole lives. Can you think of anything that connects these three people? <coughs> Samson. John the Baptist, and, and Samuel. Their mothers were barren. Yeah? Their mothers, they were miracle births. Their mothers were barren. It's interesting. I could probably bring loads of stuff out of that, but I haven't got time to go into little sidetracks for you. I know that's what you want, but it's not what you're getting. Just interesting. It's also interesting. I never, never really thought about it until yesterday. Uh, I looked at the logo that we're using for Samson and thought, there's a man with his arms outstretched, giving his life to destroy the enemy. It's just interesting. I'm not saying anything, there's anything else in it, but it's just, it's just interesting. Anyway, Samson was set apart. He was set apart from birth. And at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, we are also set apart. 
Now, I don't know what it was like when you were growing up, but I would look at Bible characters and be totally impressed by them, like Samson and people who actually followed God properly as well in the Bible, and be impressed by them. And you look around at other people, and you can see gifting. I imagine people would look at Samson and see that that he did incredible feats of strength, things that, that normal humans couldn't do. And maybe they would say, yeah, I'm not like Samson, or I wish I was like Samson. Or maybe we're not that obvious. Maybe we just look around people in our lives and we admire things that they are or things that we perceive that they have and we think, I'm not like that. And we don't say I'm not like that in a recognition way. We say I'm not like that in a negative way, in that I'm not like that and I kind of wish that I was. But the Bible says you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The Bible says that about us. So even, there, even though there is a significant thing that is happening to Samson, a significant calling, a significant moment that he is set apart in the nation of Israel, you need to know that you, whoever you are in this room, are also called and set apart. You are called and set apart. And it may not be that, you know, you don't have to, you should never drink strong drink or never cut your hair again. But it may be that recognition that you are set apart will lead you to lead a different lifestyle than others would expect. Or maybe that you would even expect. It may lead you to make some decisions that, that makes it obvious that you are consecrated to God. I remember in, the, in the, the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that always encouraged me about Nehemiah, and we've done Nehemiah so many times, it's like Life Church's manual, Nehemiah. <coughs> one of the things that encourages me about Nehemiah is, is later on in the chapter, he talks about the fact that um, as the, the kind of mayor, the kind of commander of the city, there were some things that he should have had. He should have had daily allowance of, of money. He should have had uh, food provided for him. And it was, there were things that, that he should have had. And he could have said, these things belong to me. And nobody would have said, no, they don't. Because that was his role. That was his position. And because of the position that he had, those things were rightfully his. But he says this great line. He says, but I didn't have them because I wanted the people to be blessed. I didn't have them. Because I wanted the people to be blessed. So there is a man who has an opportunity to have things that are his right. But he says, I don't want my rights because I want other people to be blessed. Yes, I should have this. But actually, I'm going to use this to bless other people. And that, to me, is an example of someone who understands what it is to live in a way that is set apart. Who looks at themselves and says... It isn't about what is my right, but it is about what does God want me to do with this? What does God want me to do with this? I think it really would have helped Samson if he'd taken some time sometimes to ask himself that question. What does God want me to do with this? Uh, there's a little throwaway that I'm going to give you. You ready for the throwaway? <clears throat> the angel of the Lord appears to her. She is barren. She can't have kids. The angel of the Lord says to her, you are sterile and childless. I love that. Because he doesn't come and say, woman, it's going to be fine. Have faith. Believe what I'm saying. What you're experiencing now, that's not reality. That's not the truth. Believe what I am saying. Have faith. Look past what you are currently experiencing. It doesn't. He says, this is the reality. You are sterile and childless. This is the reality. But. 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 I wanted to do a series once, just looking at that word. But we couldn't come up with a title that didn't sound <laughs> like something else. And so we never got around to it. But I think it would be a good series just to look at those moments where there is something that changes in the middle. You are sterile and you are childless. But here's what's going to happen about that. And I think, we, I think we need to be careful. Faith is good and I'm totally for faith. 
but we have to not just ignore where we are. We have to start from where we are, and then we move into faith. We have to acknowledge where we are, and then we move into faith. But pretending, we're, pretending we are somewhere is we're basically starting from a lie, as it were, because we're not starting from the truth. The angel spoke to her about our current situation. He didn't ignore it. And then he presented her with a solution. Imagine a woman who has been sterile and childless her whole life, and someone, a stranger, appears to her and says, you're going to have a kid. You might be tempted to think, who are you, you crazy person? You don't even know my story. You don't know what's happened in my life. You don't know how long I've wanted to have a child. And you're just coming along telling me I'm going to have a child. But imagine that same woman and the stranger says, you are, and defines who she is and tells her exactly what she knows, and then says, but. That's a different story. That's a different uh, method of communication. The angel was communicating that God knew all about her and also put himself in a place where he had her full attention because he was a stranger and wouldn't really know this stuff about her. So he says to her, you are sterile and childless, but you're going to conceive and have a son. She runs to her husband and says, oh, some guy said, and I love, I love that Manoah prays. He says, Lord, if this really happened, can you send this dude again? Because it sounds amazing, but what she says just sounds mad. So will you send this guy again? And so Manoah prays, Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. It seems like it seems like a weak prayer. It seems like a man who doesn't believe his wife. It seems like, mm, I'm not so sure. But his words are really powerful. He says, teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. There is a measure of faith here. And whether it is that he was so desperate to have a child and they hadn't had children, obviously, so desperate that he's clinging on to every shred of hope here, there is some faith here. Help us, Lord. Help us to hold on to those tiny moments, those tiny, tiny, tiny things sometimes that God just shares with us to give us strength. So anyway, God hears Manoah's prayer, and he sends the angel again. And, um, and the angel appears to the woman again, and she runs to get Manoah. And he questions him. He says, are you the one who spoke to my wife? He says, I am. And he says, when your words are fulfilled... What is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? Again, there isn't, there isn't any doubt here. It's when your words are fulfilled. He's expecting that this will happen. When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? And then the angel tells him some stuff. So thinking about Samson, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to recognize right from the beginning, the second reason why I don't think Samson was a failure. And because his calling was this, it says at the end of verse 5, set apart to God from birth, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He will begin. It doesn't say he will deliver Israel from the Philistines. It says he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. His mission was to start this thing off. And in fact, this thing being delivered completely from the Philistines, it wouldn't really be finished until David, until King David. So in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Methag Amma from the control of the Philistines. And after that, we don't really hear much about the Philistines. But it was Samson's job to start this offensive off, to start this deliverance off. And so we can look at his life and look at his misdeeds and look at his mistakes and think, Samson, you messed up. But actually, if we summed up what he did, and we'll find this out, if we summed up what he did, he definitely started to deliver the children of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. <clears throat> you know, sometimes I think about things that I could have done. Yeah things that I should have done. 
I mean, just recently, and I will have shared this um, probably recently as well, it was half term. I had a lot of time to not work. And in my head, I had some things that I could have done. And then at the end of the week, I looked back and thought, there are things that I should have done and I could have done, and I did not do them. And so if I honestly measured myself to, uh, against the whole idea of productivity in my half-term week, I would be a failure. I would, because I should have done some stuff. But in the grand scheme of life, and in the grand scheme of things, I genuinely needed some rest. I did need some rest, and I got some rest. And so even though there's a little part of me that feels guilty for the time that, and I did waste some time, to be honest, there is that sense that also there were times that I was strengthened. But I don't, if you ask me about myself now, I don't mark myself by that moment in my life and carry around the burden of being a failure because I didn't do something I should have done. Because that's not how it goes. And some of us sometimes can carry that, that kind of label of, I'm a failure because I made a mistake once. I made one mistake, and that means I'm a failure forever. But that's not how it works, and it's definitely not how God works. God chose to continue to use Samson, even though he made mistakes. <clears throat> and remember that God sees the end from the beginning. And so God would not have been surprised by what Samson did. He would not have been surprised by the times that Samson made mistakes, the time that Samson let him down, the time that Samson could have made better decisions. God would not have been surprised by those times. And yet, still, we have a moment here in Judges 13 where God speaks to a woman who is barren and says, you're going to have a son, and he's going to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. It's amazing. It is amazing. And so think about how God can use us, God can speak to us, God can speak through us when we're willing to give ourselves over and not just hold ourselves under the banner of something that I did once. <clears throat> Samson, I don't think, was a failure. So Manoah asks, Manoah asks the angel to repeat himself and to say what what they should do to help to raise this boy. And I wonder if he regretted that. The reason I ask this is because when, when the angel speaks to his wife, and we don't know this lady's name, bless her, when he speaks to his wife, he gives her a list of instructions. And then when Manoah asks him to clarify, those instructions grow. I don't know if you noticed, but there's an extra thing added into the instructions. And I don't know if she was sat there going, oh, why did you ask? Now there's an extra thing I have to do. Because he says, he says to her, see that you drink no wine or other fermented drink. You don't eat anything unclean because you conceive give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because he's to be set apart as a Nazarite. And then later on, he says, she must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine. So before it was drink, no fermented drink. Now she's not even allowed some grapes. So you may have been quite excited about, oh, I might not be able to drink wine, but... Now I can't even have grapes or raisin cakes or fruit loaf. Can't have that anymore. Just can't have that. Why did you ask for clarification, Manoah? You've made it worse. So the angel clarifies the things that she has to do. It's interesting that she wasn't set apart as a Nazarite, but because she was carrying someone who was going to, she had to also do the same things. That's interesting. And I wonder if sometimes as people who follow God, if there are times where we have to carry stuff that other people are also carrying, not because we need to, but because they need us to. I wonder if that's the case. I think it is. And I think we need to be aware of those moments where God asks us just to take some time or to take a moment to stand aside and to give something up maybe or just to share something that maybe we wouldn't normally do because we're carrying something on behalf of someone else. Then they try this conversation. They try and find out who this angel is. What is your name, sir? Tell us your name so that we can honor you when this comes to pass. Again, Manoah, I love his, his faith. What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? 
I mean, he's, to he's totally expectant, isn't he? Bless him. He is totally expectant. What is your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. But the angel does not tell him what his name is. <coughs> so they do this offering. And when they, when they, uh, when they burn the, the, the goat and the grain offering, the angel goes up in the flames. And they freak out. And you would freak out, wouldn't you? You'd be talking to this person. Because up until this point, they didn't know that he was an angel. You'd be talking to this person, and then you offer them food. They don't want food. They say, just offer your offering to God. You say, okay, I'll do that. So they do that. When the thing's burning, this is how I imagine it happening. The angel steps into the offering and then goes up in the flames. That's how I imagine it happening. I mean, that would be pretty amazing to see. They see that. And they recognize that this isn't a prophet who said these things. This is actually a messenger from God. And they both freak out and fall flat on their faces. And Manoah freaks out more than his wife. Because he says in verse 22, we are doomed to die because we have seen God. So he understands the Old Testament narrative that you cannot see God and live. He understands that. So he has an understanding of, of his Jewish ancestry. He understands the way that that goes. We have seen God, and we are doomed to die. But his wife, in brackets, the ultimate voice of reason, close brackets. It's not there. I just added that. She says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a green offering, nor shown us all these things nor now told us this. She says, this doesn't make sense, that God would do all of this, and then, whoo, we're doomed to die, and then we would die at the end because we saw his messenger. This doesn't make sense. And here's the challenge to us. I think sometimes as Christians, it's a challenge to me too, I think sometimes as Christians, we think it's not really okay to use our brains. It has to be spiritual. It has to be the Lord. The Lord must speak. We must hear from him. Yes, I totally agree. The Lord must speak, and we must hear from him. But we mustn't be afraid to also use our brains. Yeah, in this situation, she did not go somewhere else to seek the Lord. She just thought. And in her thinking, she said, no, we're not going to die because none of that makes any sense. Why would God show us all of this? Why would God tell us all of this? And then we're going to die. That doesn't make any sense. And sometimes we just need to think a little bit. Just think a little bit. I had a friend who, whose mom was... I was a very spiritual lady, <laughs> and, um, and she would always say, Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. It, it, was, it was a phrase that she used all the time, and I mean all the time. And we had another friend who was traveling with us, and she would get a little bit irritated by this woman just saying, Lord, help me. Jesus, help me all the time. And uh, she was reversing, parking, and she just, under her breath, she'd do it all the time. She said, Lord, help me park this car. And, and my other friend lost it and said, if you would just use your mirrors, you'd be fine. So there gets, there gets that kind of reaction of, seriously, sometimes we just need to use our brains. Sometimes we just need to think it through. Sometimes we just need to think, God has given me the ability to think, and I can make a decision here. I can now, I'm not saying, please do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we just decide to make all the decisions in the world and we don't include God in any of our thinking. Of course I am. What I'm saying is that we don't be paralyzed by a situation because we don't have to be paralyzed by a situation. We think, and we do pray, obviously. But don't leave your brains at the door. Don't leave your brains at the door. God gave us our brains. He gave us our intelligence. He gave us the ability to think. And he wants us to use that. And we're grateful for people who are smarter than we are, who are able to explain things to us. We're grateful for all of those things. But God wants us to use our brains. And I love that this woman just said, nah, 
It's not happening. It doesn't make sense. It's just not happening. And she was speaking wisdom to him there. One final, one final nugget, one final thought. <coughs> it says, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahan Dan, which also means the camp of Dan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. I love when I read scripture. I love when I read scripture. But I love when I read scripture and, and I find things in verses that are seemingly not important, like this one. The spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in the camp of Dan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. God speaks and moves where you are. The reason we know this is because Samson was from the tribe of Dan. So the fact that he was in the camp of Dan when the Spirit of God began to stir him is basically saying Samson was with his people. He was surrounded by his tribe. He was at home, if you'd like to, if you'd like to think that way. He was in the camp of Dan when God began to stir in him. And I've seen it in my own life where sometimes we think we need to go to a big conference to hear what God has to say. We need to go somewhere else to hear the big international speaker who's got a big international ministry, who's written a thousand books and has a massive church. We need to hear what he has to say for God to speak to us. But actually, God speaks and moves where you are, where you are. And in this in this narrative here. God is the Spirit of God begins to stir in Samson while he is at home, while he is surrounded by his people. There was a time in my life before we moved to Warrington, there was a time where I was thinking about what we were going to do next. I had lots of questions and, and lots of things happening inside me. And, and Lord, I do feel a bit unsettled and what is it you've got for me next and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, a friend said he was going to a conference in, uh, in Harrogate. And I thought, oh, I'll, yeah, I'll come with you to that. And there was going to be a guy who was going to be speaking at the conference who is well known for his prophetic ministry. So I got really excited. I thought, it'd be great. Oh, yes. What I really want, God, is to be sat in the congregation, in the audience. And for this guy with his ministry, the scary ministry to be fair, but with his ministry, I want him to say prophetically something that is for me. That's what I want. And I got really excited about this conference, really excited. And then we got to the conference. <laughs> and on the first night, um, the, the guy who was leading the conference just said, listen, I just need to let you know that this guy uh, couldn't make it. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't come to the conference. We're really sorry. But we've got someone else in his place. God's still going to speak. It's going to be amazing. So I'm immediately disappointed. Why am I disappointed? Disappointment is evidence that you put your hope in the wrong place. Yeah, so immediately I'm disappointed. And then I speak to myself a little bit and I say, this guy who's come to replace him, he's a good speaker. I've heard his, I've heard his talks before. He's a good communicator. He'll be good. He'll have something to say to me that will be really good. So I'm excited to hear this guy speak. And he gets up to speak. <laughs> I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed. His whole message was, I know that you want to hear from God. Genuinely, this was his whole message. I know that you want to hear from God, but you need to remember that God speaks to us in the secret place. That was his whole message. And the whole, the whole time he's preaching, I'm like, no, that, no, that's not what I want. That's not what I want to hear. And then my friend who was with me, he didn't know anything was happening to me. He turned to me and said, this really is for you, isn't it? And I'm, you know that scene in Avengers where, where the Hulk just punches Thor uh, that nearly happened, but it didn't. It didn't happen. I was, I was gracious. And so the message that I got was, God will speak to you in the secret place, Nick. The reminder that I got is it doesn't have to be in a big conference where you hear the next direction for your life or what God wants to do in you. It can be, and it should be, at home. It should be in your local expression of church, surrounded by people who love you and who love God. That's where you hear what God has to say to you. And I can tell you, there's so many stories I can tell you where God did speak to me at home, in my secret place, in the moments where I was engaging with God on my own, 
those moments were where God spoke to me about what I was going to do next. <coughs> One example about how God speaks to us at home. Genesis, this is not in my notes, but I feel you need to know this. Genesis chapter 11. This verse changed my life and brought me to Warrington. Are you ready? It's not on the screen because it's not in my notes. It says, Terah took his son. This is Genesis eleven thirty-one. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. It changed my life. It changed my life because I read that verse, and it's one of those verses you just, you just carry on reading. I mean, what's, what's that got to do with anything, really? <laughs> they went to go somewhere, but they, they settled somewhere else. Let's move on. Let's move to where God is speaking and miracles are happening. What's this verse got to do with anything? But when I read that, I, something happened in my head, and I remember that Canaan was the promised land. And so on rereading that, he set off to go to the promised land. But when he came to Haran, which wasn't the promised land, he settled there. And then I had this thought, what if I have settled somewhere that isn't my promised land? What if I've settled somewhere that isn't where I should end up? <laughs> and then I started to ask questions. I started to ask God questions, started to pray, started to really think through this verse because, and I wrote in my journal, this must not be my story. I do not want this to be my story, that I should be somewhere else, but I didn't get there because I settled on the way. But that didn't happen from a platform in a conference somewhere else. That happened in my house while I was reading the Bible by myself. Because God speaks to us where we are. And he speaks to us at home. And he began to move in Samson while he was surrounded by the people he knew and the people he loved. <coughs> There's a pastor in America called John Tyson. And he said, I was listening to something he was saying last year. And he is, he is a self-proclaimed revival fanatic. He is really interested in revival and researches revivals. He will visit a place if there's a revival because he's fascinated by revivals. And what he wanted to do is he wanted, to, he wanted, if he could, to find out why revivals happen in particular places. What is it that causes a revival to happen? What is it that causes God to turn up in a powerful way, whether it be miners in Wales or whether it be Azusa Street in America? What happens to cause a revival to, ha to, to take place? And he came up, did a lot of research. He's the kind of guy who, when he goes on holiday, he doesn't go to Spain. He'll go to a place where a revival happened at some point, and then he'll do some research. He's that kind of guy. He came up with this line, and it challenges me, and I hope it challenges us all. He says, this is what happens. God comes where he is wanted. God comes where he is wanted. It isn't about a conference or about a place or a type of person or whatever. God comes where he is wanted. And I want us to have that hunger for him, that he comes. I want us to be really desperate for God to show up and to do something because we want him to do that here in our local spaces, in our local expressions of church. That the Spirit of God, just like it did in Samson, the Spirit of God would begin to stir in us where we are. Samson as a whole was a picture of Israel, really. Wayward and unpredictable. One minute doing good, one minute forgetting who God was. One minute being punished, one minute turning back to God. He was a picture of Israel. And yet, still used by God. In fact, I think more so he's a picture of us because we're the same. One minute we're hot for God, 
Next minute, we, don't, we can't tell the last time we read our Bibles. One minute, we're happy to pray every day. The next moment, we've forgotten what prayer is like. One minute, we're hot. One minute, we're cold. We can be unpredictable in our walk with God. And yet, he still loves us. He still loves us. I'm going to end with this, Ephesians chapter 2. Just to remind you that you're set apart. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Some versions say masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Samson was an act of grace. He was set apart. And you are an act of grace to people around you. And you have been set apart. And we have to have that, that understanding that God can speak and move where we are. And we have to expect that he will speak and move where we are because he comes where he is wanted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, in stories of great triumph and stories of great tragedy, there is much to learn. And we recognize that there is much to learn. And so, Father, we pray that for all the things that we learn, we don't want to be people who know stuff. We want to be people who know you. And we want to be people who, whose lives reflect what we know about you. That we don't just carry knowledge, but that knowledge flows into who we are. And knowledge flows into our behavior. And so, Father, whether, we, whether we've, we consider ourselves failures in some way, I pray that you'll set us free from that thinking in Jesus' name. That you'll cut that off. That you cut that word of the enemy off in Jesus' name. Lord, that you will help us to see that we have been called, we've been chosen, and that we are set apart to do things that you planned way in advance, even before we were here. All those things were spoken over Samson before he was conceived. And Lord, I pray that, that there will be that recognition that you have spoken so many things over us. Father, I pray that we'll be people who, who want you. Lord, forgive us when our eyes are turned and our attention is called to, to other places, not because other places are bad, but because it maybe makes us a little bit ungrateful for where we are. You have called us to this place, and you will speak to us in this place. And I pray that you will help us to hear you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brilliant. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.